Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and in the few weeks since I recorded this episode, the world has changed, particularly for listeners with uteruses. Our guest this week is Anne Heltzel, author of Just Like Mother. It's a novel about fertility and pressure and the cult of motherhood, and the word cult is not used lightly either. When I read this just a few weeks ago, it spoke to me on a profound level for personal reasons, as you'll hear. But in the intervening days, the entire axis of this subject has shifted, with the assault on women's rights currently being waged on Pennsylvania Avenue. Maybe we'll come back to that in the afterword to this conversation, but I just wanted to point out that there is a lag between Anne and I speaking and you hearing it, because this would have been a very different conversation today, I'm sure. That's a sombre start, but have no fear, this is a romp of a conversation. Anne and I talk about the creepiness of dolls, whether we give too much importance to twists in fiction, our shared experiences of feeling off course in our 20s, and how everything, anything, can be a cult if you just tweak it hard enough. (laughs) Remember, you can support this show through Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod, and sign up for a few dollars or pounds or your local currency, you get access to a whole backlog of extra bonus chat with guests as well as my personally curated deep dives into myriad topics. And thanks to recent subscribers, Heidi, Jen, Elizabeth Rosen, Jamie Waugh and Matthew Piper, you guys are the best. And now, come with me to a creepy mansion upstate where you will do what mother tells you. Let's talk scared. Hello, Anne, and welcome to Talking Scared. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Should warn you and the listeners that I'm utterly exhausted from lack of sleep. So if this conversation goes off the rails, listeners, you can you can blame me. Well, I'll, I'm pretty sure I'll be complicit because... I'm similarly um, lacking in sleep this week, so no worries there. Yeah, we've been discussing off air that this could go in any any number of directions because we're both not working at optimum. Um, yeah, my, my dog keeps leaping on my chest at ridiculous times in the morning to wake me up. It's almost like I've got a kid. Um, <laughs> and with that entirely unplanned segue, <laughs> we can we could turn to your new novel, which is called Just Like Mother. Um, and for some reason, I keep referring to it in my own head as just like mummy. So apologies if I get that wrong. It is just like That's mother. even creepier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, when you've seen the cover, which is basically like an animatronic baby's head, uh, it, it just gets even creepier. It's a, it's a really chilling cover. Um, it just keeps staring at me from my, bed, from my bedside cabinet. I don't like it. <laughs> it's a fascinating read. And I think it'll be fascinating to discuss because there's an awful lot in here to talk about. But to start us off, can you give us whatever introduction to this story you think we need? Sure. So it's a story about two girls who grow up in a cult. They are uncertain of their relationship, but they know they're blood related in some way. They call each other cousin. Um And then when they're young, I believe around age seven or eight, I honestly don't remember (laughs) which I settled on. Um, There's a tragedy that results in the um, breaking up of the the disbanding of the cult. Um, 
And then our main character, our protagonist, Maeve, feels lonely throughout her entire life. She's been, um, you know, through the foster care system. She sort of keeps people at bay and she's established what she considers to be a safe life in New York City. She's a book editor. She um, doesn't have very many close relationships. And for a long time, she's felt as though there's something missing where her cousin, Andrea, used to be. They were, you know, sort of the only true friend she ever knew. So when Andrea reappears in her life through a DNA website, Maeve is very happy. She feels like finally she can have that sort of idealized relationship back. And um, as the two reconnect, um, she starts to, you know, things start to to go gradually in a, in a I don't know, uh, I don't know what to, how to say this without giving too much away, but... <laughs> It goes a direction she didn't expect, <laughs> and uh, she's sort of she's forced to sort of confront a lot of her experiences from childhood, which are fairly horrific. So it's it's you know thematically, it's a story about fertility and motherhood and expectations that society puts on women, and it's also about survivors of trauma and the ways that trauma can shape you. When you say it like that, it sounds like a really profound psychological study. And it is, but there's also loads of cool, horror, scary stuff in there as well. A lot of which I didn't expect. I'm going to start off right in the deep end. And this may be a a tad presumptuous because we don't know each other. So apologies. (laughs) But Just Like Mother feels like it comes from a very personal place. I know all books do, but this feels like it's it's got your your soul kind of invested in, in, in a little bit is that fair to say is this born out of some of your own experiences of the world yeah yeah absolutely um and I don't mind sharing that I started writing the book when I was uh living in New York City as a single person around I think I was around 33 when I started writing this and I had um a couple years before that experienced a really devastating breakup it was you know someone I was very much in love with and starting over at that age, it wasn't, it wasn't so much the starting over of it that, that bothered me. I actually, I went through, you know, sort of about a a year or so of grief, um, then felt fine for another year. And then after that, I really, I really became happy with my life. And Mm I realized I'd never given myself the opportunity to be alone for very long. And I was grateful for it. And to the point where truly I loved my life. And I honestly don't know that I could have said that at any point. Um, at least as an adult in New York City up until then. I mean, I always liked my life, but I really loved it. I loved being alone. It felt necessary and great, and I was just happier than I'd been. And so when I started, you know, the problem, the problem, and I say that like sort of in quotes, is was that I was doing it at the wrong time. And I felt as though um, I had sort of like missed the memo on, uh, you know, the acceptable age at, at which you, you can be, you know, single. And then when you're supposed to transition to something else. And so a lot of it was sort of um, expectations for coupledom mixed with uh, expectations for motherhood and feeling a lot of unintentional judgment. I mean, no one in my life was in any way unkind, but there were just um, little hints that, you know, what, what's going on with you or what's wrong with you? Or uh, I just wasn't quite doing things right. And I wasn't following the rules. And it was a really interesting experience seeing, you know, most of my friends really settled down and building families and just redirecting their focus. So <laughs> I don't know, it, I started to, to feel extremely alienated and, and uh, this sense of 
you know, a little bit of, I don't know, discomfort in the awareness that people were looking at me and, and thinking what, what's wrong. And at this time when I felt so good, um, and you know, like little comments you get, like, don't worry, there's still time, things like that. Uh, they happen pretty frequently. And then, then you start to realize just how insidious society is in general and how it's just set up to benefit the family structure. And this, you know, sounds obvious and it's, it's definitely no secret, but it, when you're sort of living in that moment and experiencing it and everything is just slightly harder, especially in a, a city like New York, that's already very difficult. And, you know, when you're living alone, you don't get the perks of sharing rent and you don't get to share a gym membership. And, you know, it's just a degree harder. And um, all of that started to feel really terrifying that society was set up to force you into this thing. And then you ask, why? Why are all these people doing it? And I realized none of my friends and I had ever really stopped to talk about why they were building families or what, you know, they wanted. And so I asked people some questions and um, a few friends were, you know, I'm grateful. A lot of my friends are very forthcoming and, and honest about these things. And um, there were so many answers that surprised me. Everything from one friend just outright saying, you won't have missed out if you have children, but you will, or no, it was, what did she say? She said, um, yes, if you do not have children, you won't be missing out. You can still have those relationships with other children, you know, like your nieces and mm-hmm. nephews, other people in your life, friends, children. Um, if you do have children, you will definitely be missing out on the life you have right now. And that really like shook me. Um, it, I, I think there are definitely ways they handle all, all the things, but it, you know, hearing someone say that, someone with children say that, um, I just appreciated it. And then others were saying, you know, they were ambivalent about it up until the moment they gave birth. They were like, this might be a horrible mistake. And it was that kind of um, unvarnished honesty um, that made me want to sort of explore this middle ground of ambivalence uh, and fear. And, um, and even the idea that we are all just opting into something that, has been pre-established that we've been told we need to opt into at some point or we just won't mm-hmm. fit in and, and life will be a lot harder. So that's where the cult idea came from. It felt, it started to seem a little bit like a cult to me. Um, obviously that's exaggerated for the purposes of this book, but you know. It's very rare that I am lost for words on this show, but everything you've just said speaks so deeply to the last sort of 15 years of my life even though i'm male and there isn't the element of the pressure to bear a child i am um, yeah i'm a bit taken aback basically I, I just recognize everything you've said because i when i was in my 20s i didn't have like the career i was doing like higher education stuff and i was just pitifully poor and i i had just mm-hmm. a sequence of like ridiculous relationships that you know, toxic or disastrous or whatever. And I used to just kind of like quit a job at a minute's notice and just go traveling for six months. I mean, it sounds great, but it's quite precipitous and terrifying. Yeah. I remember having loads of my friends who'd got into couples and were like, were on the, you know, they'd done the grad scheme and they got their first proper job and they were buying houses and, 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 and stuff. And I don't even drive and, you know, they all got, they'd all got the nice car. And I remember all my friends (laughs) suddenly starting to talk to me and I could tell that, one or two things had happened. Either there was a pity there that they yep. had thought I'd somehow gone off a br- on, on like I'd gone off the track of like you know the way life was supposed to be. Or sometimes what's more insidious is if it wasn't pity. Sometimes there was a real kind of people were offended by the way I live my life, 
because in some way undermined the choices they'd made. But I remember I just felt so lonely for most of my twenties because of, in retrospect, because of that, because I felt like everyone was judging me for not having what I was supposed to have. And then you start to panic and think, Oh God, I'm supposed to have this stuff by now, you know, and now I'm married and stuff and it's all, and got a house and it all worked out. But yeah, you, wow. Sorry. I was a bit, I'm a bit taken aback. Even even what you're saying there, it all worked out is sort of like directly tied into that, that culture of, we have to do this thing. It's, it's fascinating. Like part of me almost feels like I sold out by, by mm. also settling down with a partner and, you know, by, we bought a house last fall and, you know, yeah. it's, it, it is really interesting because you don't expect um, that your friends will leave you behind and no one really intends to. It's just that it gets harder. Just, you don't live the, the same lives anymore. It just gets harder to make your paths align. Um, you know, none of my friends really left me behind, but it certainly was more difficult to, to find opportunities to spend time together. It's weird how how love and affection and all that stuff gets tied into the capitalist system. Yes, I know. I've been thinking a lot about that. Like yeah. you're like like you're saying, you feel like you sold out by getting a partner, and you know, and, and like it's it's awful that, that by by falling in love and wanting to share your life with somebody, you are in some way being co opted by a a capitalist financial structure. It's a strange thing to think about. That it is very strange. I've got to say. I think I, it's not so much that I feel um, guilt over having found someone that I love and, and really feel like, you know, um, is a good fit for me. It's it's more that I, I feel guilt over the relief I feel about it. <laughs> Does mm. that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. there's a sense of relief that, you know, wow, you know, I'm 38 and it's just like me to procrastinate, but here I am pulling off at the last second, <laughs> like that kind yeah. of thing. But then feeling that relief um, results in guilt like what would have been so bad about living the way I was living which was yeah. quite happy um at times lonely but um really happy and we're I mean we're even the same age so like we really are I think there's a lot of the same experiences here it's just that you happen to write a really good book about it whereas I just got angsty and went to therapy um oh. <laughs> yeah I mean I mean I, I do that too <laughs> <laughs> I mean to, to, to dig into the slightly more specifics of how this I hate the phrase quarter life crisis, but you know what I mean. Um, As a guy, I was ridiculously oblivious to this idea that not wanting children was a taboo subject. So my wife and I aren't having kids. Uh, We Mm -hmm. we have we have like yearly checkups where we both agree on this and we check that we both think the same. Um, And I've asked her permission to well exactly that i've actually asked her permission to mention this on the show because i've only realized recently that for a lot of people it is a taboo subject like i was walking around just happily saying to people oh yeah we're not having kids and i never i never understood why my wife was cringing in the corner that that stigma is so odd to me you know like right. and it's interesting that you talk about it being a cult and you say it's an exaggeration but there are definite strands there where you can point directly to it as a, as a useful allegory. You know, this acceptance of this is the way that life is. Mm-hmm. That's what it is, really. It's just sort of the unquestioning, okay, like that's the next phase of life and that's what you do. What you do. And it's such a big deal. You know, it's it's such a, and maybe this is, you know, there are, I have a lot of fears wrapped up in the idea of motherhood in general, but um, I don't know, maybe it's just a lot of really well-adjusted people who don't have the same fears I do who are perfectly fine um, just sort of moving to that next phase. But I think, you know, you identified something interesting 
um, the sense that your wife, I think you said, or a partner, your wife, my wife, yeah. uh, had more awareness of that taboo. And I, I do think it's, it's more socially acceptable now than ever, but I actually think it's much more taboo not to have a partner for whatever reason, not to have like a, mm. a significant other. Um, but, but yes, you still do get asked a lot of questions when you don't have children and your wife experienced it before you did. And that's telling, I mean, everyone experiences it, but men have certainly a few more years. Um, for women, obviously, for obvious reasons, there's there's the ticking clock and there's people wondering if and when. And um, and it's the same thing with, you know, settling down as a couple too. Men sort of get, they get a pass. Um, you get a pass if you want to have fun for a few more years. Um, I would say there's probably like at least a five-year buffer that you have that women don't have. Um, when women get to a certain age and, you know, don't have their life figured out, it's, uh, just a lot more obvious, I think, mm. and a lot more frowned upon. Um, part of that is just like, you know, old uterus and also fading looks. <laughs> and uh, it, it's unfortunate, but um, it, it's, you know, all of that extends and that in turn feeds into the capitalist society you're mentioning, like everything we do to preserve our fertility. That's actually one thing I did with my book advance money. I froze my eggs that in itself I could talk about forever because there's like, I think it's just criminal that you have to have a certain amount of money to afford mm -hmm. to have children later when so many people, like we can't, people can't afford to have them earlier now. It's well, like well, this, yeah, this is the weird perversion of it all. But like, you know, as we say, the, 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 the capitalist system just demands that you are in a couple by giving you quite literal financial breaks. You know, you can live more affordably if you're in a couple. And stuff. So mm -hmm. you get channed onto this track of like it, it behooves you financially and socially to do this, get it in a couple, have children. Yet at the same time, the same system has squozen us so much that women, you know, can't afford to have kids when they're, uh, uh, you know, 22 because they've got to work right. these days. Because who the hell can afford a one, one income house? Right. They are one income house all these days. So this same system that's applying the pressure has also shrunk this window of feasibility down to like exactly. when you're young enough but rich and it's just it's so perverse what what's happened to yeah i mean it I, I mean i definitely had several years of i don't want to say financial hardship a lot of people have it mm. way worse um but difficulty a lot of difficulty getting by um and you know sort of scrambled um and hustled a lot to claw my way out of it and also had like, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of luck in doing that. And while, but while I was in that phase, um, really like not certain of how things would, would work out or if they would work out, I noticed just how, I mean, again, these are all such obvious things. And I feel a little bit embarrassed that I noticed them so late, but um, how easy it is once you're in a bad place for it to sort of compound and spiral. Again, everything is set up um, in our system for, you know, wealthy people to get richer and for, poor people to have an almost impossible time getting out of that rut. It's, it's wild. It blew my mind. And you, you hear it I, again, like I just internalized it at that point, but I knew these things existed, but um, experiencing it firsthand does give a different perspective on it. I didn't realize quite how corrupt it is, um, mm -hmm. um, you know, until it was just so in my face and so obvious. It's like credit card companies and, I don't know any, you always get the breaks if you can like pay for a subscription one year up front and then you get 15% off, but who ha you know, who has that money? The people who don't need the 15% off. So 
it's stuff like that. Anyway, kind of veering away from this, but but yeah, the fertility industry is is complicit as well. And in your book, in 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 general, there is this endless kind of running refrain of the cultish way of thinking about all this stuff. Um, and Maeve, our main character, to get into the book itself now, one of the things that I found kind of wryly amusing, but also it's part of the anxiety of it all, is that Maeve is kind of infantilized by everyone around her. You know, everyone is either trying to take care of her or exploiting her. Like, for example, she sits in the back seat with with this toddler on the drive up to Andrea's house. She's very much relegated to the back seat as like almost the other kid. And and there are scenes where she's kind of bathed like a child. Yeah. All of which actually makes what happens later on much more disturbing. Um, and she even has she even develops alopecia, which I took as a kind of visual reference to her becoming almost more childlike. You know the with with the cover being basically a baby, you know, a hairless baby and, and stuff like that. It felt like that was tied into it. And mm-hmm. I wondered basically like what you were trying to say about the way that people see Maeve. Are you trying to get across that people are just pitying of, of people in her position? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Um, and Maeve in particular too, I think is, uh, you know, this it's a dynamic that she's participating in uh, when she is, in Andrea's home. And part of that is her regressing to childhood. Um, when she sees Andrea, that's the last time she knew Andrea, right. And who she was a, as a child is who she sort of becomes in that atmosphere. Um, mm-hmm. and she really, as a, as a child was controlled and manipulated. So it's much easier, um, for things to happen that are a little off kilter and her to accept them. Um, you know, her to, to trust or, or her to sort of willfully set aside, um, suspicion because she wants something so badly. And what she wants is that closeness with Andrea, um, because she hasn't had closeness like that for a long time. And yes, the, you know, on the, on the flip side, Andrea knows exactly where Maeve is vulnerable and how to exploit that. Um, Mm. she knows what she's been through. She knows exactly what her weak points are and she's able to do that. And, you know, maybe on some level Maeve wants to be cared for because she has struggled for so long. Um, she, you know, is sort of, she's doing fine in New York city, but not, um, you know, she's living in sort of a small dingy apartment that she furnishes with like street fines, things like that. Um, she's, she's on the precipice of failure, I think. Mm. So it puts her in a unique position and Andrea has a lot of money and can exploit that as well. In addition to all the emotional exploitation. So yes, um, it all serves to highlight, I think, uh, how vulnerable people can be perceived to be when they're alone. Um, and yes, I do think there is a natural compulsion to take care of people who are alone, um, people who mean well, frequently they want to do favors for people who they see in a lesser position. Um, mm-hmm. And it actually, there's a specific <laughs> incident that the backseat of the car was inspired by. Um, and I'm like a little worried because I don't want my, the, the people who are in my life that were involved in this to listen to this. <laughs> Whatever, I'll mention it. Um, I I was staying, uh, we had like sort of a, a getaway with friends um, and I was the only single person there and the rest were couples. And this is, 
it was purely a matter of what was available in the house, but, <laughs> but uh, everyone else got sort of like a real bed and I got um, like a twin, uh, like a twin sleeper <laughs> sofa thing, which, which honestly was totally fine. It was just that it made me hyper aware of being the only single person. Cause it was, it was a twin size little fold out armchair and it was not intentional by any means. And it was literally just like, that was what was, there was no other bed, you know, but um, so of course I was going to take that, but it really was, uh, it just, I don't know. There was a moment where I, I felt like, wow, like this is where I'm at. <laughs> um, you know, my wife describes exactly the same kind of experience because she was single a long time before she met me. Um, unlucky girl. I mean, to have me as the pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. Um, but she, <laughs> she, yeah, she talks about um, exactly the same stuff, you know, always being on the end of the table at weddings and just, just that stuff that really subtly reaffirms your kind of status oh in society. God. Yep. The wedding thing, don't even get me started. Like that, <laughs> this is actually something I laugh about um, with uh, one of my cousins because there, there was a wedding we went to that was a family wedding and it was lovely. And, you know, we, we laughed. This was not meant in, in spite, but the, the, you know, like the boards that say your table number. Yeah. Yeah. The conceit behind the boards uh, wasn't just like a piece, you know, usually there's just like a little piece of paper or like something well-designed that has like a number. This one, um, the couple had, had asked everyone to send in um, a photo from their own wedding. So you're, and it was, it's really nice when you think about it. Like if you're a person who had a wedding and was, married but you know because then you get this nice little photo and at at the table were these these little frames so you got to put your photo in the frame it was a celebration of marriage and whatever but then those of us who who were alone it was just hilariously obvious it was like this pin board with all these marriage photos and like three people who is just <laughs> your face like just just my face and then like two other people who had the same situation and we were, we were dying because it was like hi, here's a board of marriage and here are the three weirdos. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, it stuff is. like that. Oh, you know. Well, that that whole thing, of it, you said an interesting thing about exploiting the vulnerable, you know, how vulnerable people, people are when they're alone. And I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but I just want to point out one thing. Now, people haven't read the book yet. This is a bit specific, apologies, but it, it is interesting. There's a really cool narrative trick you pull where, in chapter 17, you have Maeve as a child being cared for, genuinely cared for, by her adoptive parents, Patty and Tom. And they have this conversation about how she should start over after the trauma of the cult and how she should put the past behind her and how the wow. therapist can help with that. And it's all very loving and affirmative. And then in the very next chapter, like literally the next page, you've got an adult Maeve living with Andrea being told exactly the same thing, but they're saying it in a more modern context, saying things like, rather than saying move on from the past, they're saying, oh, don't Google things. It's not healthy to know too much. And then rather than therapy, they're saying, oh, here, take one of these dolls, which we can get to in a moment. But it it's a really stark relief between kind of positive care for a child and sinister exploitation of an adult, but they look like the same thing or they sound like the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was really important to me to have Patty and Tom, the adoptive parents, be a positive model for a family for Maeve. Um, I wanted her to have it like a few years of a positive experience um, to see sort of 
you know, and there are, there are flaws, obviously, in Patty and Maeve's uh, philosophy, or sorry, um, Patty and Tom's philosophy um, of leaving, like just putting the past in the past and don't thinking about, you know, not thinking about it. Because I think if you don't think about it and you don't really process negative emotions, you're always susceptible um, to, I don't know, to just having to confront them in unexpected ways and to having them come back and rear their heads and rear their heads. And it's, um, yes, that was, it's intentional. The flashbacks tie into either the before or after scenes in an intentional way. Um, and what you are mentioning is to me absolutely terrifying and it happens all the time. And like, I'm, I can feel my blood pressure, (laughs) my heart racing right now. Um, it's so easy to disguise emotional abuse. It's like, it blows my mind how easy it is. It's, you know, if you are a master manipulator, you can pull off just about anything. Like on paper, it looks just fine, but there's something off about it. And there's Mm -hmm. something, um, really malicious about it. And, um, yeah, I mean, even, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a specific example. The most benign phrases when said the correct way um, can be evil. <laughs> and and yeah, I, I did want to demonstrate sort of how um, how this atmosphere would just be very ripe for confusion for Maeve. Yeah. Um, she just doesn't have any type of stable anything to look to, you know? And she doesn't know how to identify um, what's healthy and what's not. Mm-hmm. Um, I like asking authors about their inspirations and I haven't done it for a while and and with you it seems like there is a lot of Ira Levin and Rosemary's Baby in the background of this book oh yeah there's obviously this maternal theme but there's a whole tone of paranoia as mm-hmm. well and but that paranoia in Rosemary's Baby it's Rosemary who's paranoid right rightly so whereas in your book it's the reader who knows something is wrong Whilst Maeve is being reasonable and self-doubting and, and as you say, trying to kind of just recapture this bond with Andrea, we're screaming at her not to trust these people. And you said at the start, before we started recording, you were saying like, it's not really a big twist that there is something afoot with Andrea. Um, mm-hmm. Did you intend the tension to work that way as kind of dramatic irony rather than mystery? Where we kind of, we have much more idea of how these pieces fit together much earlier than Maeve does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, um, I can't say every aspect of it was intentional, but there some of it was. Um, my agent and I had a lot of conversations about this when I was revising before we went on submission, and um, you know, she she was encouraging me to um, disguise Andrea as as the villain and work harder to um, you know have readers not suspect Andrea. But I just kind of felt that would be impossible <laughs> given the setup. Um, the setup is the two of those characters um, as children and then, you know, them reconnecting. I mean, of course, readers are going to be suspicious. So for me, what was really important um, was just making the journey fun. <laughs> like it wasn't going to be the end result that was surprising. It was the, the getting there that was going to hopefully um, be somewhat surprising and go in, in interesting directions. So, yes, um, the some of the twists were were never. I was I was not under any uh, illusion that they would be um, a surprise to the reader, um, but I, I did hope that I threw in just some wacky 
off the beaten path sort of adventures throughout that would make it um, interesting and fun and different. So that was the goal. I don't know if I actually hopefully. (laughs) No, you you very much do because it's a weird thing to say that like it wasn't a twist. That isn't criticism. And I don't quite know what's happened to storytelling where it's almost like if, if it, if it doesn't have a twist, it's not good enough. I don't know where that's come from, that idea. You know, that it happens a lot on this show where I talk to people and I always say, like, oh, I don't want to spoil the ending. I don't want to spoil the twist and stuff. Right. And like, when did that become the default that something has to have an, a, a big reveal that you can't spoil? I, I don't know when that happened. I don't know, but I mean, it is actually extremely difficult to come up with a twist. It's for savvy readers, like, who read and watch everything good yeah. luck like, it's very hard so but for this one i it just was like this setup wasn't going to lead into a massive twist um so yeah i just wanted to like have the story be a good story i guess and have the journey be a fun one but it it is interesting and like this is going to sound so self-congratulatory but i'm an editor i read a lot i watch a ton of movies too um my my partner wants to kill me every time i, I like accurately i mean i'm, I'm very guilty of just like saying, oh, I wonder if this, like during a movie and it's yeah. usually bad. And then he's like furious with me. He's like, just be quiet. <laughs> um, and I, you know, if, if you do read a lot, you, you've seen it all, you know what you see early clues really easily, you know what they're setting up and you know what the twist is going to be. And it's the point for me where I genuinely don't know if something is um, like obvious to me or obvious mm-hmm. to everyone. It just depends on the reader. I think it just depends on how um, deeply enmeshed in this world of storytelling you are and then you know I don't know I do try to like surprise myself when I'm writing because that's the you know the best way to potentially surprise readers so Mm -hmm. like the very end of the book I didn't know until I was in the like starting the last third like I knew I what I wanted um in general but I didn't know the last couple scenes and well Mm-hmm. The, those last couple of scenes are as chilling as hell. I mean, that we won't spoil because it's it's a really mm-hmm. nice little fish hook right at the end. Um, but let's just say that it kind of intensifies the paranoia rather than allaying it. Mm-hmm. Did you not feel like letting Maeve off the hook? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I guess not. <laughs> I don't know. Um <laughs> I, in some ways, I think I gave Maeve something good to work with, (laughs) Um, but it couldn't be just a perfect ending for Maeve. I mean, Maeve was unfortunately set up to fail from the very beginning. (laughs) Yeah, but you're Um, saying it like it's some minor thing. I mean, at at the end, it's like almost existential terror. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... I struggled with some as I don't want, it's hard to talk about this. Um, I struggled with yeah. aspects of that, but I wanted, I, again, I, I like living in sort of a, a gray space and examining um, what is within the, you know, and what is not on the binary, what is in the middle and what is um, a little more muddied and complicated. And so that was part of the inspiration for that on a, um, like, again, like an allegorical level. Um, but I also wanted it to be scary. So in a, on a literal level, I wanted it to work in that way. <laughs> i tell you what you're reminding me of. You know, um, this is a bit of a deep cut, but you know the ah, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the the one with Donald Sutherland. Have you seen that movie? I've not seen it. 
oh, well, it, it ends on this scene. It's one of the most chilling things where basically the, the premise of this, I, I think, oh, no, it's Wyndham. It's not R11. I was going to make another R11 comparison. But like, so obviously there's these pod people that are taking people over and, you know, this thing is spreading subliminally. And and they, the, the pod people make this kind of weird, like, throat screeching noise. And, and at the very end, Donald Sutherland, who you think is, is a hero, turns to the camera and makes that noise. And it's just so chilling because you realise that yeah. nothing is safe now. Ah. you know. And the end of this book, I won't say any more than that, gave me that same feel of like, oh, God, there is no stable <laughs> ground anymore. Good. <laughs> it's funny. There was a point at which that ending just was, it was like it already existed, in, I mean, in my head. But it, mm-hmm. before I wrote the ending, the ending... I had this sense of the ending existing in some way. Um, I was like, that is the ending. And now I just have to transcribe it. And again, I was, I, I thought, well, I don't know if this is going to be of interest to people or if it'll surprise people or not, but this is the ending. It was, it was weird. It was almost like, you know, the same experience of watching a movie and being like, Oh, I know what they're doing. That's the ending. Mm-hmm. I th- that experience. Yeah. It was like, I know what the story is doing, but it, as a separate thing from myself. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it just had to be what it was. <laughs> Well, I mean, we've gone right to the end there, so let's kind of draw it back a little bit. A lot of these themes we've talked about, you know, everything from like quarter-life angst to to motherhood to friendship to all of these things would be right at home in some cool indie navel-gazing literary novel, you know, some some slim 120-page thing that's the, the, Mm -hmm. the talk of the town, you know. But you've taken it on through a speculative horror lens Mm -hmm. is there a it might be too obvious a question but is there a reason for that is it the nature of the story for you or is it more just your aesthetic choice a few reasons for that number one i am not a literary writer um i don't think i could have pulled off what you're describing (laughs) the slim navel gazing well i don't like what i'm describing so it's that's fine Uh, by me (laughs) well and the other thing is i i just wanted to have fun and to me, horror is really fun. And um, and then also, you know, I've been wanting to, uh, I've just, you know, I'm one of those people who for like all of life has been called out for taking the conversation to a dark place, mm-hmm. <laughs> including just as recently as this week when I sat down to a work lunch and within five minutes, my boss said, well, geez, we're going to a really, you know, a really dark uh, place now. This is supposed to be a celebratory lunch. Like we were there a few minutes ago. I was like, well, what's what's the difference here? The difference is that I showed up, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and um, so I, I kind of identified that I have that tendency and that is where my imagination goes. And in some way it is, it is a strength of mine. So why not just lean into it that, you know, and also obviously there's more, um, there's an opportunity for it now. There's more space for it in our, in the market. I mean, I think, I feel like, Jordan Peele sort of opened the door for other storytellers to tell uh, like contemporary realistic horror, the the horrors mm-hmm. of our world and our, our lives that are sort of literal. Um, so it seems like a good time for it. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I really wanted to have fun with it and that's where I went. Although there is a lot of fear about people reading it, I will say, because um in going to this place very overtly, um, you know, friends and family. I mean, <laughs> I definitely, you know, grew up being with sort of being a nice girl and having that be the goal. And so going to this place is a little bit frightening for me, knowing uh-huh. that people in my community growing up would, would read it. I mean, are you, are you 
open to the idea that that just like mother may rub some people up the wrong way was that your intent do you even care you um know? i'm definitely open to that i it wasn't my intent i wasn't trying to stir the pot um or be provocative in any way it was my intent was just to um convey through the lens of horror my own fears and experience and show mm -hmm. how it feels to be in that position um i know it will rub people the wrong way especially you know just in its uh just certain scenes and the structure um yeah i mean at this point i think i think you know i'm in that safe late 30s space where you just don't care what people think anymore as much um it, yeah that's just it is what it is and i can't stop you know my fears of what people think from you know me living and writing <laughs> of course i just i love the thought of someone like lauren bulbert reading this and just the head just start turning to steam <laughs> i think what what my my bigger worry is is that some people may not get that it was all intention so i i have to say i'm guilty of reading reviews and there were one or two reviews on goodreads that um, where it, it seemed like the reader maybe thought it wasn't intentional that some of these characters were um, aggressively annoying. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, no, <laughs> I really did something wrong. If, oh, what what um, do you mean? That they, they didn't get that we were supposed to? Well, yeah. Hate them, I, well, it's, the impression I got was that they thought that it was an argument for buying into some oh, other God. Guy. And I yeah, and I was like, oh man, I really screwed up. <laughs> no, no, that 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 is tone deaf on a whole new level. I mean, there's a there's a character in this book called Emily who just you want to throttle her from the I first moment so you meet her. She's yeah. my favorite character. <laughs> well, yeah, but you know what I mean, but she's dreadful. I mean, later yeah. on you find there is more to it, but yeah, but like she comes, she's the one who really infantilizes Maeve. She's the one who comes out with things like you know, it's it. It's not just that it's not okay to not have children. It's in her eyes, it's actively wrong. It's a betrayal yeah. of yourself and the human race. I mean, it's really grandiose you. stuff, yeah. you know. Yeah, and I think anyone with any kind of sense reads that, and it's just it, it's not a caricature, but it's an extreme view. So I, I don't really get how you can take that as 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 a thing you're behind. I hope that I did Emily justice. I wanted to. Emily is interesting. I mean, I. I hope I did her justice. She was a very, very flat character in, in early drafts. And I had to sort of, I just didn't know who she was. And at some point I dug in and figured out what her deal was. And, mm -hmm. and then, you know, built in additional layers. And I, I really hope that, um, you know, I, there's always more work to be done, right? It's like, I wish I had a whole other year to do more work, but I like what I wound up doing with that character. And I, um, I hope people like it because that, I have a special spot in my heart for Emily. <laughs> yeah, she's a lot of fun, but you do hate her. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, we, we've, we've talked about a lot here. Like, there's there's a lot going on in this book. I mean, you've got a cult, which I'm going to ask you about in a second. We've got the, the big creepy house in itself is kind of, you know, a gothic space. That's oh, almost wow. a genre in itself of the big creepy house with secret passages. And then alongside that, and this is the part I was surprised by, we've got this sort of techno thriller element as well because mm -hmm. andrea is um she's ceo of of this this company that makes these these dolls these kind of um almost lifelike dolls and you know it's a lot of very strong discrete strands 
but each one feels like it could carry an, a, a novel on its own. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that whole mix came about? I was just, as you were talking, trying to remember what the genesis of the doll, the dolls have been there since the very beginning. Most of this book, um, like very little exists from the first draft. Uh, I re you know, rewrote and revised and whatever. There's probably one scene in the entire book that is the same as the first draft. Oh, and wow. that is the like arrival at the house with the first, the first scene that features a doll. And yeah, so the, the doll thing has been a part of it from the very beginning. And I, I cannot remember why or how that came about. I think, um, I think honestly, just the imagery was frightening to me that, you know, there'd be dolls that people would be treating like real babies. Um, mm-hmm. Just this idea that you could actually be like nursing a doll and like behaving as though a doll is, it probably was just some sort of reflection on like, again, on childhood and children and what they do with dolls. Um, now that I think about it, uh, you know, play acting with dolls and, and bringing that in. Um, and it made sense to me. Like when I was thinking about Andrea's career, um, it made sense to me that dolls would be used um, both for grieving and for preparation. And I think, you know, there are all of these experiments kids do in high school. And I think they're fairly outdated at this point, but like carrying around something and knowing what it, like an egg and knowing that, you know, you have to project this egg and what it's like to be responsible for something like that. But um there aren't a lot that I can think of usages of dolls as like a grieving tool, but um, I've been like learning a lot more about AI in general and bots and how people can program a bot based on like someone in their life who passed like their text messages or emails and the bot will be that person and certainly mm-hmm. you know, provide closure of some sort. I mean, I think it's really dangerous. Like it could provide closure or it could make it much harder to let go, but the idea was sort of, um, I think, to, to broaden the scope of of Andrea's business um, to allow for grieving as well, and and then yeah, just like the that really startling imagery of, of adults play acting, you know, playing yeah. the way you might. It's have. very it's very Black Mirror that element of this of the story. And when you I know, first started writing this, very very like back when you know this is now five six years ago, Black Mirror was definitely on my mind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's one scene where the, the, Maeve is kind of she's in a strange mental state for certain reasons, mm-hmm. and she walks into a bathroom, and there's just like a mound yeah. of these dolls all kind of writhing around, and then a voice comes from them because there's a there's a baby monitor hidden in there, and mm-hmm. it, it really it made me realize that moment that like the dolls are not really essential to the actual plot as such, to the linear plot. But they they make for the freakiest of set dressings, and yes. and I think sometimes we talk about extraneous detail as if it as if it it's your duty to get rid of it. But you know you you want creepy set dressings certainly well, certainly if it's something as creepy as that. And there is something I'm leaving out that I just remembered. They also allow for a level of um, violence that towards you, children. Yeah, yeah, that you act, can't really write in like you're not going to write that into a book with a real child, you know? So they allow for this like play acting of sort of like a violent fantasies, not my own, Mm -hmm. but the characters. Um, And there are a couple of scenes where they're, the dolls are directly related to um, violent scenes and 
self-harm and and wanting you know I don't want to say too much here, but yeah, it, it gave sure. me the ability to um, do things that you can't do with real, with real children, which I wouldn't want to do with real children mm-hmm. um, because it would but be there's, awful and scary. There's, there's a scene where uh, early on, there's quite a lot of scenes in this book actually, where I, I saw them as a, as a film as in, you know, I could really have a cinematic grasp on this, this book. Um, and there's one scene early on when, when you first see one of these dolls and, and the dog gets hold of it and just rips it apart. Yeah. And it, it sounds awful, but you know, we're amongst horror friends here. I just picked, I just made me laugh so much because I was seeing it <laughs> on screen and I imagine just these, these women just looking in horror as this dog savaged this, <laughs> this fake yeah. child. It just really made me laugh, which probably says a bit too much about me. I think um, very visually as a writer, like I, I definitely, it's my, my partner, Andy is also actually a horror writer. Um, and we have talked about how we think about it very differently. Um, my, like for me, it's just, it's literal scenes in my brain that I transcribe and that's how I, I write the book. It's like scenes pop to mind and I write them down and then I start to like connect them. Um, but yeah, I, it's always a very visual process and I would love to love to see it actually be on screen. <laughs> yeah. Fingers crossed. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mentioned see. before the night Rosemary's baby, you know, maybe that's what, maybe that's why I was seeing it so visually because of the, the, how famous the film version of that book is. Um, I just kept spotting kind of links between that story and, and yours. Um, but what, one of the main ones is this idea of a cult, but your cult, is not satanic or as I could pick up, even spiritual. It's, it's just mm-hmm. matriarchal and conservatively feminist um, and very frightening. <laughs> and yeah. can you talk a little bit about that part before we finish about the, the cult element? Sure. It's a whole separate strand, but I want to know more because it's such a frightening cult. What, what the mother collective is doing and, and what they stand for it. It's yeah, it's hideous. So, so I didn't, intend to make this any kind of Rosemary's Baby update. I sort of, but I became aware at some point while, while I was writing that it it had a lot of similarities and that, which I, you know, I didn't think was a bad thing, but it did make me hyper aware of wanting to do something different. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did not want to recreate, um, you know, the last act of Rosemary's Baby. I, I wanted it to exist as something completely different. Um, and so the cult came from, you know, wanting to stay away from any spiritual inspiration. It also came from, you know, women I um, grew up with and, and cared very much about who went in different directions and, and sort of what happens when you, when you do really lean into this idea of um, sex for the purpose of procreation as like the be all and end all. Um, and, um, oh, the mothers, I really, really wanted there to be multiple mothers and one other mm-hmm. fear that is not, I don't lean heavily into this, but I want to exploit the fear of becoming your mother. Hence just like mother there, there's just these common fears. There's the fear of having children and there's the fear of becoming your parents. But I did not want to have, you know, the whole book be like the fear of becoming one's own mother, because I just, I wanted to keep it any sort of like speculative space um, that was like eerie and, and distant enough to not, um, you know, really be commentary on, on like my own life or, or have it be too familiar in that way to anyone else. So I don't, I just thought having multiple mothers would be really 
scary. <laughs> um, you know, and there's also these extremes of feminism and feminism when perverted can be really damaging. And I wanted to show also how women are, um, you know, we always, we focus a lot on, on the way men can harm women. And there's a lot of that in, in this book too, but the way women can harm other women is really, really awful. And it doesn't get a lot of conversation, I think, because, well, for, you know, because women ideally need to stand together and, um, you know, it's, it's tough to talk about issues like that, but any sort of movement, um, I think most movements, uh, are rooted in good, most religious movements, most spiritual movements, um, almost anything you can think of that becomes bad is, is typically rooted in good. And, um, you know, that includes like feminism. And when, when feminism is taken to bizarre extremes, it becomes just as bad as, as any of these other things that we see, you know, in society. So those are all just things I was just themes I was playing with when I wrote the cult. Well, that's why I think the whole cult metaphor is just really interested in today's world. Well, I'm going to have to be careful now what I say, because I'm going to sound like I'm a, some kind of anti-feminist. I'm, I'm far from it. We had a conversation right. on the show recently with, with Vicky Valentine, um, VL Valentine, and we talked about exactly the same thing about how it's very difficult to represent the female mistreatment of women because it in some way splinters the cause or it becomes a problematic as if you are as if you if you present a a violent dangerous woman you are in some way buying in to the woman hating agenda you know and obviously it's a lot more nuanced than that you know right but it just strikes me that we, we live in a world that's so ideologically stratified or you know certainly twitter would have, would have us believe it that way and, and the broader media that things like feminism or any kind of identity politics you can so easily tweak them into yeah. the kind of cult metaphor yeah. just because no one is in whatever cause right or wrong no one seems to have any understanding of anything outside that mentality do you, do you know what i mean or so it, it just feels yeah, exactly. It's just a, just a slight distortion. And it's like, you know, yeah, it's it's just like exactly that, just tweaking it slightly and it becomes something else entirely. And you can, like, that's actually what I was thinking about the other day. I was like, literally anything, any system we have could be considered a cult if you, mm. if you just amplify it and take it to a darker place. Um, and I, you know, I identify as a feminist. I, um, obviously I strongly believe, um, in women's rights. And, but it, I think Carmen Mikado talked about this a little bit and in into the dream house, or maybe I read an interview about that book, um, with her where she, she I, I believe she expressed, um, some initial hesitation in writing that book because portraying, um, like a same sex relationship as emotionally abusive. She was worried exactly what you said, like worried that it would somehow hurt the positive momentum, mm. um, that the queer community has had. So, and so, yeah, it's the same thing here. It's like, obviously they, you know, feminism, I mean, women have come very far, but, but really anything when taken to the extreme can be. Yeah. The the hesitation, the way we're speaking, because we are progressive people who want it. That's part and parcel of what I'm talking about. You know, you and I are nervous now because we feel like we're going to in some way hurt the momentum. And that's not what I mean at all. I just think that when you've got anything, no matter how good, no matter how good, that reached a point where it's unquestionable, mm-hmm. that is indivisible in my eyes from a cult. Because all that yeah. is is a belief network, that your belief structure that you cannot question. Right. You know, and I just think that that in itself 
becomes a frightening thing because all it then needs is the wrong person to seize the reins of power of that very good thing. Right. And the shit hits the fan, you know? Um, Yeah. And you start thinking about just like culture and, and like cult as part of the word culture. And when you look at even like the movements we're seeing from the pandemic and the shit, like massive shifts from city centers. And when you're doing these things, you think it's just you doing it. And then all of a sudden you look around and everyone has done it. And it's a, it's a whole movement. And it, and you realize you're part of something and you weren't totally aware you're part of this thing. And that, and you know, it happens like that. That's, I moved out of um, Brooklyn upstate and, and really wasn't aware that it was a massive movement until um i was sort of already until it was already in motion and Mm -hmm. when you realize that you're not thinking in a unique way a lot of people are thinking and reacting in the same way you are it it feels like all the world is a cult (laughs) i started a podcast in lockdown i mean i am literally one of millions (laughs) (laughs) there you go you know yeah i i am not an original thinker Listen, we're both tired, me and you, so we've done an hour there for the listeners. Let's finish off with the last two questions. First of all, can you recommend a book for my listeners and and, and tell us why? Yes. So I think I mentioned earlier in in this uh, conversation that my my partner is also a horror writer, so... Um, we are just two two horror writers living in a hundred year old house, um, <laughs> haunted. Um, interesting life. Uh, but he, so he's a wonderful writer, and I read everything he writes, of course. Um, and he had a book out in the fall called "The Seven Visitations of Sidney Burgess," um, which it's interesting. Like, I think both he and I sort of play around with genre, um, and I I tend to lean toward thriller, horror, hybrid mashup types and he's really um really interested in uh horror and um sort of like speculative uh fantasy sci-fi elements and you can kind of see all of them in that in this book it's um it is oh gosh now i have to like spend a minute since i've read it but it is about a woman um who is an addict in recovery and it opens with a very violent home invasion and she has no memory of uh what exactly went down but there you know there's blood everywhere and and you know everyone thinks she's faking this amnesia and it sort of walks through her psychological journey with some flashbacks um also she's she's you know she and her boyfriend are raising a son and a lot of it is like a lot of her fears it, it's interesting because he talks about like a love for one's child and we don't have kids and um i don't know where he got all this but it really felt authentic when i read it <laughs> emotionally authentic but there's a through line of um of god i don't want to spoil it but like a, a horror element um that invades this family unit and and then as it unravels, you start to see like where it originated, and it's really fascinating. And then he also has another book out this coming fall. It comes on the um, pale horse or something. It's called, yeah. Right? Oh my god, this book! It rides a pale horse. I like this one even more. <laughs> um, I mean, I love Andy's writing. Can I say um, we haven't said his name? Your, your partner is Andy Marino. Yes, sorry, Andy Marino. I should have led with that. I should um, just explain that someone. I think Andy's publisher reached out to me at the end of last year to try and get him on the show. And at the time I'd filled the roster all the way to Christmas. Um, oh. So I, I well, couldn't have him on. Time. 
and then the next book out in the fall is um, totally different, sort of like a really broad scope um, about artists and what happens when the art gets out of control. And there's like elements of the occult and it's, that one is also really awesome. That one's called It Rides a Pale Horse. And it's, that one sort of is like reminiscent of um, Stephen King, I think a little bit in writing style. The writing style is totally different. So it's interesting to see his range and we have a lot of fun talking about it, but yeah, his books are great. He also writes middle grade novels. Yeah. Excellent. Right. Well, give him my contact details. We'll we'll set it up. I will. Thank you. That's very kind. And my last question, I mean, you mentioned the hundred year old house, so maybe that will feature, but what truly scares you? What truly scares me? Mm. Um, a couple of things. I'm terrified. I'm very claustrophobic. Um, very. And there are, there are passages in this house, in, in the house and just like mother. So is that where that came from? These tight passages? Yeah. Well, those also came from, um, secret passages in the house I grew up in, which. Oh, wow. Yeah. We're pretty cool. But, um, I, yeah, so anything specific, I can specifically tell you that the idea of being buried alive scares the crap out of me. <laughs> I mean, but not just for like the be- the being alive part, it's like the being unable to move part. Oh, um, yeah. Or, oh my God, if you have read Cat Ward's book, Needless Street, there were some passages, there were just some, um, some scenes in that book where a character is confined and that was mm-hmm. so terrifying. I'm also really mm-hmm. afraid of deep water and I, I guess it's a common fear because there are films called deep water. Um, but I stumbled across a something on Instagram. It was like the deepest man-made pool and it's in Dubai and it's like a sunken city. And I've seen this pool. Oh my so God. Cool looking. It scares the crap out of me. It is awful. And See, I don't, I don't mind that because there's no creatures in it. It's the deep water that you, there might be things in it, like Cthulhu. Yes. That's what bothers me. Oh, it's so scary. I have nightmares all the time of being in a dolphin tank. I don't know why, but it's like just the depth of it and not really knowing what's under there. And just the yes, it's not knowing what's all under there, but also um, just how massive it is and powerful and you feel so tiny. Maybe it's like a control thing. <laughs> um and then when I was a kid, I was terrified of spiders. I've somewhat grown out of that, but um, it related to a specific incident involving a wolf spider in the public swimming pool. So those are my three major paranoias. I don't know what a wolf spider is, but it sounds awful. It's like a tarantula. It's disgusting. Oh, well, and it, it, did it did it get you? Did it? It didn't get me. I mean, they're pretty harmless. It was, I was, I was in the public bathroom and it was crawling up next to the toilet and just crawling up the wall. And I, I guess was sort of paralyzed in fear and was whimpering and a very kind woman like reached over the edge of the stall and unlocked the door and helped me out. And then later at the pool, she was like telling all the other moms, she was like, it was way too big to squash. It was awful. So. Oh, see, I, I'm not, I was terrified of spiders, but I've got over it. But something like that would just send me into a tailspin. I definitely have grown mostly out of it, but my brother um, very frequently will send me, like if he comes across something about like spiders dropping from the sky or whatever, like, he'll send it to me. A few weeks ago, we had a spider in the car when my wife was driving and it was over her head and it was tiny, but she was freaking out and it prompted me to Google, um, don't know why, Australian spiders in the car oh my god and you just see all these clips of like huntsman spiders that are like the size of a plate just like 
crawling out of the dashboard while someone's driving. And I just think, like, how does anyone in that country ever get in a car, ever? That, I, I mean, Australia looks absolutely stunning, but knowing the critters that live there, I mean, that, I, that would dissuade me. I can't handle giant spiders. Indeed. Well, well, we, we've gone all the way there from, you know, the existential and anchoring fear of failure at life through to spiders. So it's the, it's the full the full gamut of terror this week on Talk Instead. Um, honestly, I really enjoyed this book. I think the, the, the best kind of accolade I can give this book is that I'm someone who will never, ever be under any pressure to bear a child. And I still felt all the rage and anger and anxiety um, that you were trying to evoke. If anyone is in their 20s or their 30s or whenever, and they're, they're having kind of, they're fretting about their life, this might this might be the book they need to read that gives them some catharsis. I hope it does very well. And uh, Anne Helsel, thank you for talking scared. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. On reflection, I'm not going to start weighing in on the Roe v. Wade situation. As so often, I've come to the realisation that I'm not the right person to comment, I don't know enough about the subject, and what difference does my opinion make? Everyone, I hope, knows that I stand emphatically with the rights of women to govern their own bodies. And if we're going to start banning access to medical procedures, can we please start by withdrawing them from some members of the Republican Party? I'd love to see Mitch McConnell need an appendectomy and not be allowed one. The entire thing is a fucking disgrace. If anyone is listening to this in the future, and, and by then the Western world has turned fully into Margaret Atwood's Gilead, just know that it started sometime around 2016, when America elected a semi-sentient turnip into office. Seems I did weigh in. Sorry, I'm a tad pissed off. <laughs> the situation does put a different slant on Anne's book as well, doesn't it? All of a sudden, the context around the statement, I don't want a baby, has tightened a few notches. Like I say, I have no real idea of the stigma surrounding that choice. My wife educated me fully on that score. Just Like Mother does a tremendous job of putting that life choice into a horror scenario. It's one of those books that manages to be both high-octane and surface-level thrilling, whilst also being very much about something. And as you heard it, it's pertinent to both women and men because that idea that you're living your life a little bit askew, that things aren't quite how and where they're supposed to be by now, that affects loads of us. I think it's the nature of contemporary capitalism, isn't it? I mean, that's what we talked about, you know, build the treadmill and then keep everyone on it. Yeah, reading Just Like Mother felt like a nod of understanding to myself 10 years back when I was floundering even more than I am today. And that's from someone who doesn't even have the pressure of fertility, etc. Basically, what I'm saying in far too many words is if you've ever felt completely lost and out of sync in your peer group, this book will speak to you. Oh, and like me, you'll want Anne to write a whole other novel about the Mother Collective, the scariest cult since Jenny Melamed's Gather the Daughters, and we'll talk about that book some other time. Speaking of other books, I'd like to bring something to your attention. Friend of the show, Dan Sewell, I mentioned him last week, he has an offer you can't really refuse. He's offering free, yet entirely free, e-copies of his novel, Ash. It's described as if Guy Ritchie made an alien invasion horror. There are no strings attached. Just go to the link in the show notes and it'll direct you to the Amazon page of your region. 
Dan's a good guy, a great friend of the show, and from what I've seen, a fine writer. So there you are. Check out his work. Check out Ash. Reach out to me if you want to talk about anything horror-related, whether it's this episode, my list of the best 50 horror novels ever written. Yeah, I'm still pumping that, and it's still available on the Esquire website. Or we could talk about the recent Bram Stoker Awards. And congrats to friends of the show, Ellen Datlow, Stephen Graham-Jones, Hayley Piper, and Gemma Files, amongst many others. It's easy to get in touch. Simply email talkingscaredpod at gmail.com or it's talkscaredpod on Twitter and Instagram. I'm always there. I rarely sleep. Again, you can support the show through Patreon. Much appreciated if you do. And please... Please, pretty please, subscribe and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. I love reviews. Review me, goddammit. I'm back next week with Kirsten White talking about economic horror, Greek myths and abandoned amusement parks in her new novel, Hyde. Until then, book the trend, forge your own way and fight for the right to choice for you and everyone else. Read good books and remember, it's good to be scared.